This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. It was the way they moved that caused so much alarm. They were mostly men, middle-aged, vagrant types, many with no control over their hands, and many having trouble walking. They stumbled like marionette dolls, bending a knee up to raise a floppy foot before planting it down on the ground again, then the next leg. As more of them came, the doctors at an Oklahoma City hospital started making phone calls. A strange scourge was affecting people across the country, Doctors initially thought it might be a polio outbreak, but quickly realized they were wrong. They had been witnessing a lot of strange and scary things during Prohibition. It was a time of loopholes. People could no longer get alcohol from stores or bars, but they could own it. This led to a lot of bootlegging, sure, but also a lot of trips to the pharmacy. You see, throughout history, many medicines had some kind of alcohol in them. Even during Prohibition, doctors were allowed to prescribe alcohol in good faith. When he was in New York City, Winston Churchill famously suffered a minor blow when hit by a car. The cure? Eight fluid ounces of liquor per day, according to his doctor. These prescriptions were quick and easy income for those doling them out. And for those who couldn't get a script, and there weren't too many, over-the-counter options were a popular salve. Jamaican ginger, which was mostly just ginger-flavored alcohol, was a national favorite for all kinds of everyday ailments. But with the prohibitionary Volstead Act came the order for the makers of the tonic to reduce the amount of alcohol and double the ginger. The result was a sticky, bitter black syrup that in no way quenched anyone's palate. Two enterprising men set out to fix this. Harry Gross and Max Reisman, two brothers-in-law from Boston, chose a chemical known as triorthocresylphosphate, or the brand name Lindol, to spike and repackage the syrup with. 
The compound was odorless and tasteless, but used as an additive in manufacturing lacquers, not liquors. However, the manufacturer assured them it was safe for human consumption. They marketed the product as Ginger Jake, but because Lindol was in fact a slow-acting neurotoxin, a sweeping sickness began in a few months' time. From Kansas to Georgia, nearly 50,000 adults were struck by an onset of neurological symptoms. They reported numbness, paralysis, and that same strained walk. And the latter got nicknamed Jake Leg, Jake Foot, Ginger Foot, and then some. The Food and Drug Administration could do little. They were underfunded and understaffed. The investigation was handed over to the Treasury Department, which went on to arrest scores of bootleggers and pharmacists. At the end of it, Harry and Max were discovered to be the culprits of the epidemic, and arrested for, of all things, misbranding a product. But their sentences were suspended, and they more or less got a stern talking to. And the Ginger Jake survivors? They lived out the rest of their days bearing the physical consequences of Max and Harry's greed. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. When we talk about snake oil today, we think of hucksters and fraudsters and their colorful claims. But snake oil, the real snake oil, was a legitimate product until Clark Stanley showed up. He called himself the Rattlesnake King, saying that he learned of the snake's healing secrets from a Hopi medicine man. In actuality, he ripped his inspiration from the Chinese immigrants working on the Transcontinental Railroad. They brought with them a salve made from the oil of the Chinese water snake, used for its anti-inflammatory properties. Clark knew that he couldn't make a buck selling potions and promises to unsuspecting customers. All he needed was a good pitch. He was no doctor, but being a salesman got him a long way. Once upon a time, folk medicine and common sense were used to treat most ailments. People took care of their loved ones, but in the dire cases, a country doctor, who may also be a pastor or a veterinarian in his spare time, might be called. But with the Civil War came a great leap in medical technology. For a long time, battlefield surgeons and medics tried to keep up, but they simply didn't have the tools, knowledge, or people power to care for all the troops. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers died, but their deaths wouldn't be in vain though not for the patriotic and principled reasons you might imagine. As it would end up, twice as many soldiers died from disease as from battle wounds. And because of this, there were more bodies at the disposal of curious minds than ever before. The Surgeon General called for his officers to collect and send over any bits and pieces of battlefield ephemera, body parts, ballistics, that might be worth studying. Out of these specimens, an army medical museum was created for educational purposes. And as for the people who made it home from the battlefront, they were pitched into the throes of what would become America's first opioid crisis. This was no push drummed up by Big Pharma. It was instigated by the union itself. The army had doled out nearly 10 million opium pills to its soldiers and almost 3 million ounces of powdered opium in tinctures. The goal was to alleviate suffering, especially for those experiencing the long-lasting physical effects of war. And when those pills ran out, the veterans turned to morphine, 
a drug that was readily available in almost every doctor's satchel. It was used for everyday ailments, and by the 1890s, it's estimated that one in 200 Americans were addicted. And many of the people struggling with addiction were, much to the establishment's chagrin, women. People were becoming aware of how dangerous opiates were, but because they were such a profitable source of income, many doctors were slow to cease writing scripts. One German pharmaceutical company offered their own solution to the epidemic, a cough-suppressant and chemical modification of morphine they called heroin. And, as we know by now, people took to it in ways they never could have imagined. Clark Stanley, with his rattlesnake oil, wanted in on this market of people searching for cures. He showed up at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair with a gruesome marketing pitch. The captivated audience watched as he snatched a live snake from a bag, slid it open, and tossed it into a boiling pot. He then skimmed the oil off the top, packaging it right up and selling it from his platform to the clamoring audience. In actuality, this poor snake had no healing properties, and neither did its oil. But soon, Clark's oil was all over the market, thanks to door-to-door salesmen and booths at county fairs, and nothing more than a blend of beef fat, turpentine, and red pepper. In its own way, the world of food and medicine was the Wild West. It was an unregulated landscape, marked by hucksters and frauds and no oversight. People could claim what they wanted, sell what they wanted, and tell people exactly what they wanted to hear. The general public was privy to this, and though they wanted to believe in these products, they had to be skeptical, and their lives depended on it. In the early 1900s, concerned citizens led by women banded together in favor of a pure food bill, lobbying for the safety of their families. A moment of triumph came with the passing of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. With the creation of what would eventually become the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, it seemed like things were going to get better. But in actuality, this would take a very long time, and with more lives lost along the way. Frances sat at her desk, ready to tackle the applications in front of her. She had her notepads and her pile of pens. She had the confidence of her mentor and the U.S. government. Her tenacity and intellect had long guided her, and it had gotten her this far. Even though she didn't have a uniform or a badge, she was on the front line of defense, and the clock was ticking and unforgiving. Sitting in her office at the Food and Drug Administration, Frances was under the gun, and she knew the consequences could be deadly. For centuries, drug producers had been getting away with big claims. Their products, known as patent medicines, were, in effect, brilliant exercises in the seductive power of marketing. They were advertised on posters, in newspapers, in magazines, and flyers. They were pushed by traveling vaudeville-style shows and door-to-door salesmen. These drug makers leaned heavily into the world of spectacle and miracles. And they often balked at the most basic of safety measures, such as listing ingredients on their labels, testing their products, or not flagrantly putting toxins into the mouths of unsuspecting people. 
such was the world that Francis, born in 1914, had grown up in. She had always known that she'd wanted to become some kind of scientist. She was applying to PhD programs just as the Great Depression hit, and knew that many schools weren't terribly inclined to take women. Still, she applied to the new pharmacology department at the University of Chicago and received an acceptance letter back, addressed to a Mr. Francis Oldham. And she took the posting. She arrived in Chicago in 1937, right on time to take on a new wonder drug named elixir sulfonildamide, which was suspected of causing the deaths of more than 100 people, and most of those dead turned out to be children. The public was incensed, and Francis had a new assignment, figure out where this drug was going wrong. Francis launched headlong into her lab work, meticulously splicing apart the chemical compound. What she found was surprising. In its original form, the drug was supremely effective in fighting off bacterial infections. But the makers had misstepped when they created a liquid, cherry-flavored children's version. Francis and her lab mates realized, to their horror, that a compound found in that version of the elixir was usually used as an antifreeze and is a deadly poison. The drug's manufacturer was slapped with a fine, not for the resulting deaths of consumers, but for mislabeling their product. You see, they were not required to demonstrate the product's safety before it hit the market. But because an elixir, by definition, contained alcohol, and there was no alcohol present in this liquid drug, they were caught on a technicality. The general public was outraged. In 1938, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was signed into law by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which allowed the FDA to require pre-market approval of all new drugs. This was a huge success for the lab, and a feather in Francis's cap. Now they just needed to figure out how this would work in practice. For many years to come, the FDA would be understaffed and underfunded. Francis Oldham Kelsey, married to another scientist in 1943, was later invited to join the FDA's new pharmacology center in 1960. She was known to be a talented analyst and was tasked with reviewing reams of applications from pharmaceutical companies about new drugs they wanted to sell. But her team was small, she was one of just seven full-time reviewers whose job it was to keep the general public safe from predatory, money-hungry drug companies. But the greatest kink in the process was time. Francis and her team had a 60-day window for approving or rejecting a drug, and if they couldn't work fast enough, the drug would automatically go to market. In her office, she stared down at an application for a drug called by the brand name Kevadon. It was German in origin, having first appeared on the European market under a couple of other brand names, but the drug's generic name was thalidomide. She had heard of it before. It had been used for sleeplessness and upset stomach, over-the-counter even, since the 1950s. Some of you have probably heard of it too. But this drug's dark backstory and what it was capable of would take decades to unravel. The company that produced the litamide, Richardson Merrill, wanted FDA approval, and they wanted it badly. 
Their warehouses were stockpiled with stuff, waiting for the green light to go to market. They assumed that the approval would come fast and easy and that they'd make good money in the process. The application for thalidomide was glowing. It included scores of rave reviews, touting all the healing properties that a wonder drug could hold, and was especially popular for treating morning sickness during pregnancy. Richardson Merrill promised that the drug was non-addictive, non-toxic, and had absolutely no side effects. That last claim, bold and brash, was immediately suspect. For Francis, the company couldn't have thrown up more red flags if they'd tried. It was a tale as old as advertising, big claims and empty promises. She dove in. What she saw in the application, or rather didn't see, was cause for alarm. There just wasn't enough information there about any clinical trials to substantiate these big claims. There were no physician's reports, just glowing praise from supposed users. In fact, there was nothing objective to be had. So she denied the application and sent back a request for more information. In short order, she received back another stack of paperwork from Richardson Merrill. But the additional information they provided was simply more testimonials. Francis simply rejected them again. That's when the trouble began to brew. Richardson Merrill refused to take no for an answer. They called, they wrote, they visited her lab. They put the pressure on. She rejected their application a third time, pressing them on the question of potential side effects during pregnancy. They assured her the drug was safe, and after going over her head to the boss, made the concession of allowing warning labels to be put on the pill's bottles. But to Francis, this was a meaningless concession she didn't want to take their word for anything. It was when she came across a letter in the British Medical Journal that she knew she was on the right track. The letter was damning. Writing about his concern, a doctor reported painful pins and needles sensations frequently experienced by those he had prescribed the drug to long-term. Then came a trickle of similar reports, documenting cases of bodily numbness in patients and severe birth defects in their babies. The pharmaceutical company knew about the potential for nerve damage, but then neglected to do any studies in pregnant patients, or even in pregnant animals other than humans. And what little they did know, they hid, and pushed the drug to market. Even darker still, thalidomide has roots in the Holocaust. In the shadow of World War II, twin brothers Hermann and Alfred Wirtz created a company called Chemie Grunenthal, it became a haven for Nazi scientists who had spent the last few years experimenting on captives at concentration camps. The brothers hired Martin Stemmler, who was a lead thinker on the Nazi population policy and racial hygiene program, a fancy way of saying he got to choose whether people lived or died. They also brought in Heinrich Mukhtar, an expert on anti-typhus work and single-handedly responsible for scores of deaths across the concentration camps and ghettos. And, finally, there was Otto Ambrose, who'd been given the nickname The Devil's Chemist. He was Adolf Hitler's chief chemical weapons engineer, and was brought on as the chairman of Grunenthal's advisory board. Ambrose was known for his work with a nerve toxin called sarin. If you recall the horrifying stories of the gas chambers used to execute millions at these camps, then you know this chemical. An antidote was developed. 
And this drug, later claimed by Grunenthal to have been created before World War II, was thalidomide. In a potential effort to cover up the drug's dark past, the company didn't release records of its early trials, but documentation from the camps later revealed its extensive testing. They knew it was an effective sedative, and also calmed upset stomachs, so they brought it to market in dozens of countries in the mid-1950s. But soon, a wave of birth defects began appearing. Doctors were seeing underdeveloped or missing limbs and defects in the internal organs. It would later be found that the pill was enough to harm a fetus, and some mothers were taking several a day. The first child thought to be affected by this drug was, in fact, born to a Kemi Grunenthal employee. It didn't stop until 1961. Another concerned doctor published a bombshell letter in the medical journal The Lancet, linking thalidomide to these horrific birth defects. Grunenthal could no longer deny the claims, and the company removed the drug from the market that year. But no one was ever charged. It's believed that over 8,000 babies with severe thalidomide birth defects were born worldwide. No one knows how many tens of thousands more died in the womb or shortly after birth. 17 of these claims were confirmed to be linked to Richardson Merrill, who, so excited to get their wonder drug, thalidomide, to market, prematurely distributed the pills to doctors' offices. Francis didn't get a chance to deny the application for a fourth time because Richardson Merrill withdrew it once and for all. The link between this drug and this harm came too late for tens of thousands of families, but Francis had quietly saved thousands more by asking questions about what lay in the shadows. Francis's career was ascendant. She became the new head of the investigational drug branch of the FDA and worked at the organization until she was 90 years old. She passed away at the age of 101 in 2016. Thalidomide, meanwhile, is still around. In 1964, a desperate doctor was trying to find relief for his leprosy patients. No painkillers were working. He knew thalidomide caused birth defects, but no one could deny its tranquilizing properties. He was surprised to see that within three days of administering the drug, all of his patients' skin lesions had healed. By the 1970s, the drug was approved on an experimental basis by the FDA to treat inflammatory skin conditions. Since then, it's been used for symptoms related to HIV, IBS, arthritis, and lupus. Recently, it's been found successful in treating multiple myeloma, a blood cancer. Thalidomide is finally doing some good in the world, now that it's finally undergoing the research that Kemi Grunenthal neglected so many decades ago. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to luckylandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at luckylandslots.com. Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. Jeffrey Sherman was one of the lucky kids. He was just five years old, and so excited to tell his dad about what had happened at school that day. Just a few years earlier, people had been living in fear of the virus. They were getting sick and staying sick. Every summer brought with it a bout of new outbreaks, and parents couldn't help but worry. Kids were especially susceptible to the havoc that polio wrought. The virus, made famous by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, was thought to be a childhood disease. While many children ended up being okay, others would suffer the rest of their lives from damage to their central nervous system. Some were permanently paralyzed, and some died. But by 1954, a solution had finally been found. That year, mass inoculations proved to be highly successful. By August of 1955, more than four million doses had been given. And one of the best ways to get these shots into the arms of kids was to give them in school, as if pop quizzes weren't scary enough. Dr. Albert Sabin, though, had a less fearsome solution. He was working on an oral vaccine, one that would be able to be administered more easily. When Jeffrey got back from school, he had a story, but his dad was distracted. Work wasn't going well. Robert Sherman was in the midst of a crippling bout of writer's block, brought on by the high stress of needing a perfect deliverable. His boss had handpicked him for the job, and no one wanted to disappoint Walt Disney. Humoring his son, Robert asked him to tell him about getting the shot. Jeffrey quickly corrected him. He told his dad that it wasn't a shot. Instead, the nurse gave him a little sugar cube with a drop of medicine on it, and he got to eat it. Robert abruptly halted. It came to him. He had an idea. He quickly called his brother, a fellow songwriter working on the new Disney movie. One of their tunes had been scrapped, and they couldn't figure out how to replace it. Nothing was landing. The stakes for getting this new film right were very, very high. Robert got back to work. He started scratching at a piece of paper and beget a masterpiece. Mary Poppins arrived in theaters in 1964. She brought with her an iconic parasol and words of wisdom, including, if you can remember, the idea that just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Robin Miniter, 
researched by Ali Steed and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.